Okay. And here we are. Thank you so much, Francine. I'm here with uh, Francine Spaluka, who I've been in contact, mostly observing your thinking, and then a little bit in direct email contact recently. And it's really a pleasure to see you. So thanks. And thank you for the invitation. Yeah, this is great. I'm excited to learn from you. And uh, if, if you don't mind, can we just keep it light at the start? Maybe just uh, a little bit about yourself, your history with Vygotsky, or maybe even more broadly, if you prefer. Just like a, a general intro, is that okay? Okay. And see, I happened to discover Vygotsky's three papers on imagination and creativity back in the 1980s. And at that time, many of Vygotsky's works were being published in Russian for the first time. So I feel comfortable saying that nobody knew he had written three papers. Various people in Russia, maybe in, in, in the US, might have been aware of one or two of the papers in a particular publishing house that was publishing a paper for the first time. My having discovered this was awkward mm. for the field of Vygotsky studies because the thinking at that time was that to understand Vygotsky's works, you would go to Russia, study with the Russian psychologists who would explain to you how to interpret his theory. Okay. And I had stumbled upon these papers myself as a graduate student in educational psychology at the University of Chicago. And the whole University of Chicago approach is the emphasis on reading the text. So this is what I was trained for, was to read the text, uh, read related texts, and go with them. Having found this one paper, the first paper. Um, it was Vygotsky's lecture on the development of imagination in childhood from 1932, which as I understand was just recorded in stenography notes, published for the very first time in Russia in 1960. And this is 1985. And I came across the Russian text, borrowing books from the library at the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana. So I found that one. Later, I will track down two more papers by Vygotsky. The 1930 paper, Imagination and Creativity in Children, and the 1931 chapter, from the pedagogy of the adolescent, which was titled Imagination and Creativity of the Adolescent. So I'm actually translating them, not, not in a chronological order as he had written them, but tracking them down and then piecing them together. Um, the other noteworthy thing is that I spent 30 years as a community college professor. So here I am with a PhD from University of Chicago in 1991, a community, humble community college professor. And 
I the the first time I published any of the excerpts from my translations was in 1986. And, and then um, more of the translations were published 1990, 91, 92, 2004. Okay. But this was not the prevailing thinking of the Vygotsky psychology establishment that was working together with the Russian psychology establishment. Uh, I want to say that See, as I began uh, reading more of Vygotsky's writings, I could read them in Russian, or reading different people's interpretations, making connections. I was publishing with my co-author, my husband, Larry Smoluka. Now, he and I had presented a paper in 1983 at a conference of the British Psychological Society, was held in Wales. And this is before I had started to translate any of the Vygotsky material. But we were proposing a developmental model of creative imagination. And we were working from a neo-Freudian perspective. So we as I started to read Vygotsky, I realized that what he was saying, see, what, let me just say, what we were proposing was, from a neo-Freudian perspective, was that it might be possible that some people could consciously direct their imaginative thinking that Freudians had relegated to the unconscious primary process of the id. And in Freud's writings, he said it was possible that the analogical uh, type of symbol formation using in your dreams, one symbol has multiple meanings and they're often as an anal analogical connection. They're analogies of each other that Freud said it, it was possible, one line in all his writings, that that primary process thought does mature. But he never said it could mature and become a consciously directed thought process. Mm -hmm. So being very precocious as a graduate student and community college professor, my husband is a visual artist and he was teaching his art students at the community college how to search out images that could convey multiple meanings in a work of art. And he was doing this consciously. And he had a lesson plan. So, you know, I, I felt pretty confident in <laughs> saying that, yeah, you could consciously do this. When I started reading Vygotsky, it was like, oh, this can all connect. Now, from a strict Marxist perspective, from a, um, what, what, what had become like an orthodox Vygotsky perspective, I mean, you, you would not integrate Vygotsky's theory with psychoanalytic theory or Piaget's theory. As a matter of fact, bringing in bourgeois Western theories was one of the things that 
is supposed to have gotten Vygotsky banned by Stalin, right? So here we're opening up the door once again. Now, Vygotsky and Luria, his colleague, the famous brain researcher, mm -hmm. had belonged to the Russian Psychoanalytic Society before it was banned in 1928. So it's not like he didn't know these things, and he occasionally makes references. But what we're also up against is the residual from Stalin's banning of Vygotsky's works that carried over in the Cold War era in the Soviet Union in, and I'm going to say this and someone's going to be offended, but in the form of Leontiev's activity theory. So there was an interpretation that allowed for some recognition of Vygotsky as having led up to activity theory. And activity theory to this very day is very dominant in Russian psychology internationally. So, I mean, that it's still there. So we're just beginning to recognize that Vygotsky himself had a theory that was not um, evolving into activity theory, it, it wasn't just a precursor of it, that he actually had a theory of his own. And we can go into this, but there's different people who've interpreted Vygotsky's theory as just being pieces of different ideas and different papers, and he never pulled it together, or that he radically changed his mind in the last two years of his life. He came up with something new. Um, but, you know, we're, we're looking at it as a coherent theory and now i've lost my train of thought <laughs> that that's all very very interesting and i have about four questions that are on the tip of my tongue the first question is probably for another time but i'm going to ask it anyway yeah is there is there anything you'd like to share about uh larry's like lesson plan that was designed to possibly uh access like previously thought sort of unconscious images, but to do so consciously. Anything yeah. you want to say about that that's like relevant? That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, and, you know, see, when I, when I, I had written this term paper for graduate course in psychoanalysis in Freud's writings itself with a wonderful professor from University of Chicago, David Orlensky. I mean, he knows Freud's writings inside and out. He is not um, in an orthodox Freudian in his clinical practice, but I mean, I took two courses with him and so did Larry. And at the time I was taking this course, Larry was working on a conceptual performance art installation for the Museum of Welfare Soho, for Gallery in Soho in New York. And I got to sit in on the brainstorming that this group was doing and realized that they were looking for what artists would call visual isomorphisms. Comes from Rudolf Arnheim's book, but I don't remember the name of the book. But these visual isomorphisms, and. I'm, I'm just going to give a simple example that I always fall back on. It's from the poem, The Highwayman. Who's the poet? Is it a Tennyson poem? I don't I know. Believe so. Yeah, I believe so. 
That's my friend Lou's favorite poem. But okay. yes, yeah, he can recite most of it from memory. But anyway, yes. And I can recite one line. Okay. The road was a ribbon of moonlight along the dusty moor. Okay, that something's quite right there. But the road was a ribbon of moon, moonlight. It's really nice image. Across the dust, dusky moor. Hmm. And see, if I did that in a painting, or I did a painting like a ribbon, right? Or I did um, something, if I'm... I want to have a ribbon carry that double meaning of being a road. That's a visual isomorphism. Now, to linguists, it's a metaphor. So the connection between visual isomorphisms and their expression in words as a metaphor, right, is a whole whole other topic. But so I I asked my husband, he's has to be patient with me as someone with a psychology background. I said, can you put in words hmm. how it is that you're able to, you know, find these kinds of images that are rich in these double, not just double, but multiple meanings that you are then going to put in a work of art? And he said, why, certainly, <laughs> okay. I teach it to my art students all the time. Here's the lesson plan, okay? Mm. And, and when we did the presentation in Wales, it was a conference on psychology and the arts. And I have to, you know, thank the British Psychological Society because they allowed, see, two scholars from the United States who did not have PhDs at that time, they accepted the paper because they thought it was good. So Larry has illustrations from his students' exercises, and he has a series of slides to this day of things that the students did. Um, I, I would say that, um, you know, that you might, you might think, this is used in advertising. So if you wanted to have um, a big fluffy sofa that you were advertising or a bed that you were advertising, oh, let's say one bed that's like a cloud, right? With the pillows and stuff like that. So you might play on that kind of multiple meaning image. And, and what he would have his students do was he would just say, go through magazines and just cut out pictures and match them up. So I can give you some examples. They're, they're not poetic of the nature of a Tennyson work, but one student cut out a picture of a sofa and a picture of a sub sandwich. And they looked remarkably similar. Another student cut out a picture of, a, of an actual bird from the tropics who had plumage on his head that looked like a crescent orange. So he had the bird and the crescent orange. Um, someone cut out a picture of a woman stretching doing exercise and a cat stretching. 
someone cut out a picture of a rake and the Eiffel Tower. So whether a great work of art <laughs> would follow or a poem or whether, but he was training their eye to start to look for these kinds of resemblances. Um, I, I will say that the other example would be Picasso's painting Guernica, where the lamp, and if, and if I say something stupid, you have to forgive me, because I learned most of this from my husband, because I clepped out of Hume 101, 102, okay, which he will remind me to this day, taking the club tests instead of taking the courses. I had to catch up a lot on art history. But in Guernica, the image, the town is being firebombed right, by Franco. And it's not the sun that's shining up ahead. And it's not a fiery explosion. It's a tin light fixture. Right? There's a light bulb and there's a tin shade on it. And when you look at it, it could be the eye of God because choosing that particular light fixture, it does look like an eye looking down. It is kind of like an explosion of light. So there's multiple meanings in that great work of art. And I am certain I am not doing justice to it. Yeah, so the the idea of training training oneself to sort of see resemblances or to see possible like unusual substitutions um, is toward what end, or is it just a thing in itself? Is it just an exercise in itself? Is it sort of like? Is it kind of like? I'm sorry to interrupt. Is it kind of like developing a creativity muscle, so to speak? Is it like working out? Yeah. Yeah. And and I want to say that and this is where Vygotsky comes in. Because, see, having developed exercises for consciously directing your attention yeah. so that you can um, identify these images that are rich in multiple meaning and, uh, you know, identify a shape or a form that is being repeated in other images, right? That's one step. The other thing that we had proposed in our pre-Vygotsky days, in our neo-Freudian days, was that if this ability to consciously, and see, in, in dreams, this would all be just happening. You would have a dream where a boat is a coffin. I didn't come to think of it. That's in Moby, Moby Dick because the, what's the name of the harpoonist? So the, one thing I, the one thing I'm curious about is, is uh, in dreams, the individual is not necessarily thought of as the author so much. It, sometimes like the, whereas if you're consciously sort of directing your. Yeah. And that, you feel more authorship so and it's all you at all in this point see it's all you and in in a in a traditional freudian perspective the 
primary process thought of dreams that creates these very bizarre and very rich imagery. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, Moby Dick, the sailor whose life is saved is because he's floating on, a, on the coffin of the guy who's the harpooner, right? But see, in a dream, you might have a dream. Cars are kind of like coffins in a lot of the metallic handiwork that's on them. I'm just saying you could get, this could be disturbing. Is it precognitive? You're driving recklessly. What is going on? But for the Orthodox Freudians, it's always unconscious. There were a group of neo-Freudians, Lawrence Kuby and Ernst Chris, who introduced the idea that some people might be able to do regression in service of the ego, where the ego, which is consciously directed thought, could allow the bizarre yet compelling imagery produced by the unconscious process to become conscious. And because the ego was allowing it to surface and become conscious, it could be used in works of art. But we were saying that maybe it could be consciously directed. Now, sleep and dream researchers have moved on to the concept of lucid dreaming, where they have researched some people's ability and I have to say the ability of people to be trained and taught how to consciously direct their dreams to some extent. Now, I'm going to argue that you're going to get conscious control of the dreams completely but you can be aware of the fact that you're dreaming. And, and, and see, the key to all this becomes self-talk. You internalize the language strategy that your therapist has taught you or your art professor has taught you. This becomes classic Vygotsky. Yeah, I see. And I almost worked with Rosalind Cartwright at the University of Illinois at Circle Campus. I had scholarships from both University of Chicago and from University of Illinois. Now, Rosalind Cartwright at that time was pioneering the use of lucid dreaming to help people who were having nightmares caused by anxiety and depression. So she, she produced clinical techniques to teach, and these were ladies going through divorces, where, but see, but lucid dreaming, and we, we know this when we ourselves have had a dream and we know we're dreaming because almost always it's because you say to yourself silently while you're dreaming, oh, this is a this is an interesting dream. I oh I must be dreaming, right? It is the self-talk that intrudes into the dream that makes us conscious of the fact we're dreaming while we're dreaming. So there you go, raising it up to a level where it potentially can be consciously controlled. I'll tell you a funny little story. In Carlos Castaneda's in one of his books, Don Juan the shaman says that to gain control of your dreams, you look at your hands. Now I'm gonna suggest, right? That this is, this is a verbal instruction while I'm dreaming, look at my hands. A friend of ours did that when he was dreaming and when he looked at his hands, his fingers were spoons. So 
you can get a little control, right? But that's not total control. Interesting. I I could stay on this topic all day. I I have a Twin Peaks coffee mug in my hand, and and uh, Twin Peaks is probably my favorite show, and that was created by uh, Mark Frost and David Lynch, and David Lynch is one of my favorite artists who I'm just really fascinated by, uh, who speaks often about the role of intuition. And he also has practiced, uh, I believe, transcendental meditation for uh -huh. years. It's like, you know, like a very regimented practice. And uh, to some extent, I guess, I don't know too much about it, but I know you're taking a certain way of self-talk that you have to learn from someone else and sort of internalize that self-talk. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what allows somebody to uh, maybe go down deep, so to speak, is how he might describe it, and then come up with something new that is, I don't think it's described as like your own unconscious. I think it's described as more of like a, a universal wellspring of some sort. But it's interesting to hear about different people's methods of creativity. And, um, and, and then, then, about this stuff. I know very little. And then with the, it, see, if, you, if you're going to be so audacious as to suggest that primary process thought could be consciously directed to some extent, you still have to deal with the fact that there's another thought process for the psychoanalyst, which is secondary process thought of the ego, which is the analytical, logical thought process. So we were suggesting in 1983 that the two of these could mature and work in collaboration and that creativity, artistic creativity, could continue to develop further in adolescence and adulthood, right? mastering these things. Now, if anybody's read anything Larry and I wrote about Vygotsky, see now, when I happened to translate the first Vygotsky paper on creativity, and there's a real interesting story behind that, but I'm going to find out that Vygotsky is talking about the development of higher mental functions that are consciously directed by means of self-talk. So our, in, our verbal guidance of ourselves enables us to be conscious of and to direct our memory. But I can't remember where I left my keys. I can tell myself to review where I was step by step each place I've been. I could, for Vygotsky, I can consciously direct my attention to look for certain kinds of things. I can consciously direct my emotions to control my temper by counting to 10, the way my mother might have told me. I can consciously direct thinking in concepts, which is now the analytical, logical thought process. So tr starting to translate these Vygotsky papers, it was like, holy cow, right? He is thinking along the same lines that we were thinking. Now, one thing I, I hadn't thought, I always thought 
that children, preschoolers, had this wonderfully lively imagination that they come up with all kinds of clever things all by themselves. And Vygotsky was saying that wasn't so. He was saying that children learn to do pretend play and that, um, th that, it's, that from the pretend play, imagination develops. Okay. So it's not that they're born with this lively imagination. I'm going to even say this, you know, unconscious imagination that's just finally breaking through and pretend play. For Vygotsky, it's the opposite. The pretend play is the beginning of imagination as a cognitive process. And I would say that fits with Jerome and Dor Dorothy Singer's research where they had been saying for years that daydreaming followed pretend play. It was the internalized pretend play. So, so all of a sudden, I just want to say, now I've got some kind of credibility because I can cite Vygotsky from the Russian text. Yeah, yeah. And not only that, but you're citing, you're citing Vygotsky saying things similar to your hunches. So, now, now, but why... What was his main reasoning for saying that uh, pretend play is sort of a precursor or like a sort of trigger or motor for the development of imagination? And and, and, and let me say that, that that whole relationship between imagination and pretend play and where he's coming from that, that, that is something we, we, we have gotten into discussions recently we do have a Zoom series that we have moved to a website called Cultural Praxis. And, and it, it, it's a question. It's a question that isn't completely, I mean, it, it may never be completely answered. But because dreaming happens in children and, and around age two, you start to get the first dream reports because that's when they have enough vocabulary that they can report it. Um, I was originally going to be a sleep and dream researcher. That's how I happened to meet Rosalind Cartwright. But I wouldn't do experimental surgeries on live, healthy cats. So I had to switch my topic to creativity. Oh, interesting. Now, the favorite subject for sleep and dream researchers to do brain experiments on is the cat because cats have what's called paradoxical sleep they have rapid eye movements so if you want to tamper with the mechanisms that accompany the brain functioning during rapid eye movement sleep you want to get into the brain not surface electrodes and not mris now he was the cat but no one would ever suggest that cats were dreaming but the only reason Asarinsky and Kleitman came to the conclusion that rapid eye movements are associated with dreaming in human beings is because that's when they could collect dream reports and you can't give dream reports if you can't talk so there's a little conundrum back to infants right the assumption is that infants don't dream most of their sleep is 
accompanied by rapid eye movements. The majority of their sleep is in the REM stage, but no one would assume they're dreaming. Okay, so we don't know, and we may never know. Uh, but about age two, they start giving dream reports, and that is actually would be before uh, pretend play had actually, you know, developed uh, in, into um, an activity. Because at age two, my dissertation was on the social origins of object substitutions in pretend play. Now, in an object substitution, you take one object that has a visual resemblance to another object or can be used as another object, a visual isomorphism that's not an image, but it's an object. So I, an actual sub sandwich. Yeah. yeah. So I might use a box as a bed for the doll. I might flip it over and use it as the table. Okay, so I might um, say, well, okay, you're not giving the baby a bath and we're gonna put the baby in the box. Now it's gonna be a bath water, bathtub. So you see my connection, all this is connected. Yeah. And what is what I, the assumption was coming from Piaget that children just naturally use, produce, ludic symbols, it's Piaget's term, the ludic symbol at the heart of pretend play. What contemporary research is called the object substitution. What Vygotsky would refer to as the child using a stick as if the child was riding a horse. So Piaget assumed that this was just a stage of thinking that children went through and just expressed itself in its pretend play. I pioneered, <laughs> and don't think I didn't get a lot of um, static in doing this, but my dissertation proposal, I wanted to look at the origins of the object substitutions using children from and these are toddlers, 14 months of age to 28 months of age. Now, they're not supposed to be doing object substitutions at 14 months to 28 months, but that's why I wanted 14 months. And I looked at the children when they were with their mother as a caregiver, as a dyad, and when they were with a peer the same age as a dyad. And sure enough, some mothers, even at 14 months, began to show the children how to use one object as another when we're playing. If we don't have um, a plate for the doll for their dinner, maybe we have some plastic containers that have lids. So I'm going to take the lid off the container that contains the counting bears, and I'm going to use it as a plate for the doll, and that'll Okay, so some mothers started introducing it at 14 months. The kids whose mothers did the most of it, they gradually took over. And, and you know, if I graph this, because we, we have to have it empirical, and it's got to be counted and statistically analyzed. You bet it. <laughs> it was. 
right? The graphs start out low were some mothers, not all. Some mothers don't have that as a play style, but the mothers who were the ones proficient at this style of play were showing their kids, their kids got to be as good at it as the mother, okay? In the peer sessions, peers were not showing peers until the kids who had learned this from their mothers started showing their peer partner. And then a real cool thing happened one time where one little, had a little girl who had learned to do this from her mother and a little girl who was her partner whose mother didn't play like this at all. The little girl who learned to do it from her mother was showing the other girl how to do this. And then in a later mother-child session, the little girl showed her mother how to play this way, the mother who didn't play this way. So it went all around like that. Okay. And, now, uh, and Vygotsky would say what about all of that? Now, Vygotsky's paper on the role of play in development from 1932. He is saying that the object substitution is very important. He is saying that pretend play is the highest form of the preschool's development. It's the highest level they're at. But he doesn't actually say that they're learning how to play through their interaction with a more experienced play partner. So there's a controversy, a disagreement, and, and I'll, I'll say it's a legitimate disagreement among Vygotsky play researchers, where some will say that because the 1932 paper, he never talks about zone of proximal development in that paper. Now, the zone of proximal development paper where he talks about how children can function at a higher level under the verbal guidance of a more knowledgeable person, whether adult or peer who happens to be more knowledgeable. Those papers are written at about the same time, but he doesn't say the same thing in each paper. So there are a whole bunch of play researchers who think that kids just develop this ability by themselves. But see, what I saw, that was not the way it was happening. And most research on children's pretend play begins at three years of age when they're in a preschool classroom. I was looking at 14 to 28 months before they ever got into the preschool classroom. And isn't that one of the things that Vygotsky brought to the field or brought to humanity, that, that he was always looking for ways to see things that are invisible, like see things that we don't really have access to? Um, can't, like, uh, I don't know exactly how to describe it, but isn't, isn't part of what's happening there, isn't that kind of an interaction? so to speak, the interaction between like the developed form and the uh, developing form? Like, yes, yes. Ideal um, present form or something like that. Is, is that pretty much what's happening in that mother-child exchange where the child is learning before one would expect it to? Yeah, and, uh, and you make me think of two different things here. They're, they're both happening. So one is there, there is the level 
of development that a child would reach unassisted. So there's the, the unassisted level of functioning. And, and you know, Vygotsky, you know, is famous because his contribution that the level of assisted development is important. And the child with different degrees of scaffolding, to use Jerome Bruner and David Wood's term, right? So different levels of assistance. And see, I, I'm, you know, I, I can't see Vygotsky having, it, it's not just levels of assistance, like um, you're building something out of Legos and here, I'll hold that for you or something. It's always with a verbal component because for Vygotsky, the higher thought processes are the internalized, are the, I don't want to say they are, but they derive from the internalized verbal guidance of a more knowledgeable person, okay? So they derive from that verbal guidance with an activity, you know, with manipulation of objects accompanying it, all that, all that instruction. Now, you know, with, with were the, in a, a more capable peer, same age, who might not be, some, someone said to me, well, you know, it's a person at a higher mental level. And I disagreed because when you start talking about higher mental level, people may start thinking about IQ. This is other more knowledgeable peer could be just more knowledgeable in a particular skill, in a particular area. I might be more knowledgeable in one area and somebody else is more knowledgeable in the other and we may not be at higher mental levels than each other. So it's it's more knowledgeable about how to do something, right? But giving some verbal directions with it. The other thing that, that you were saying is that there is the leap of imagination. So Vygotsky is talking about being able to make that leap of imagination where you're going, as Bruner would say, beyond the information given. And you're seeing things that could be that have never been drawn, painted, never been described with words that way. Uh, vision of the future and the way life could be, you know, um, just um, what we could do tomorrow. And just a nice simple, I mean, what's my plan for tomorrow? I'm using my imagination to, to see what, what's on my schedule, right? Now, one other thing that I, I want to make sure I say is that for Vygotsky, these higher mental functions, so once you, once you get to the point where you've internalized the verbal guidance of the more knowledgeable person, and hopefully you will have many more knowledgeable people in your life. So you're kind of combining verbal guidance of one shop teacher and another teacher, one art professor and another art professor. I'm just saying it's all being combined so it's it's not just a, a little robot, a little, you know, clone of one more knowledgeable person. You're getting all kinds. But then this happens, the 
the ability to talk to yourself using this internalized verbal guidance. The research indicates it occurs around seven years of age. So now you're developing the ability to verbally guide your memory when you forget something, to verbally guide your imagination, your analytical problem solving, uh, control your temper. And then Vygotsky says that in early adolescence, you can now coordinate the conscious direction of several higher mental functions. They become a psychological system. And this is in his paper, 1930, Psychological Systems. And it is in his book from 1930, The History of the Development of the Higher Psychological Functions. So you can coordinate these as psychological systems. That's where I disagree with Nikolai Verasov's lecture on thought and language from 2010 lecture series, because he is saying psychological systems are something that Vygotsky introduces late in his career. And keeping in mind Vygotsky's writings in psychology are only over a 10 year span. But, but psychological systems are there at least as early as 1930 publications. And if you're publishing something in 1930, you've been thinking about it for a couple years. So it's not that it just occurred to him as he's going to press. What I'm what I'm what I'm interested at the moment is uh, is do these developing higher psychological functions? Uh, some of them are sort of more foregrounded than others at different times. Is there, is there like a juncture where they sort of become systemic, where they sort of become a psychological system, or are they always sort of uh, an emerging system where different functions develop into maybe neo-formations? Uh, is, the, is the system thing happening all the time, or is there like a uh, like transitional type moment where now it's clicking? Now, Vygotsky was very clear in writing that as these higher mental functions, I'm going to call them higher psychological, because we're talking about emotions as well, as they develop into consciously directed processes, and as they are coordinated together in um, different types of activities, right? so even a physicist, Albert Einstein, is going to do thought experiments about two rockets leaving from the same point in time, and one's going faster than the speed of light and arrives at the point of origin before it even left. So he's using imagination and math formulas. You can. This is the psychological system. But Vygotsky is very clear that these become neurological systems. And see, Vygotsky's theory has been treated as if it wasn't a theory of neuroscience. But it most definitely is. I have some beautiful quotes from Vygotsky from early on, where he is saying that these are becoming higher cortical functions. And Luria, who pioneered the study of the prefrontal 
cortex's role in executive functions. Right? The Oliver Sacks says Luria is his hero. Luria is the greatest brain researcher of the 20th century. But Luria said time and time again, he was just following through on what Vygotsky was saying in the time that he was working with Vygotsky. Now, modern neuroscience supports this, but that's not to be a big surprise because Luria's work on the higher cortical functions, you know, has become the basis for a great deal of modern neuroscience. What we've got now that Luria didn't have is the brain imaging technology, the MRIs. So we know now this would be standard introduction to child development textbook material, right? That, you know, talking to babies is very important, right? To establish the neural connections between Broca's area for speaking and Wernicke's area for hearing sounds. And then we have to connect them up with the image of a doggy, of a kitty cat, and all these, that, that's lower level, right? Neural connections. But we get up to the prefrontal area of the cortex. Now we've got the consciously directed, self-regulated thought. That's pretty standard. Joaquin Fuster's book on the prefrontal cortex has a wonderful passage where he's, he, and he's an expert on prefrontal cortex, where he says that, that on his discussion of imagination, that this is what Vygotsky and Lurie are talking about. It's just a beautiful passage. Um, but I also came across, there's 40 years of research on the role of the cerebellum. Now, in my time, when I first took physiology courses and studied sleep and dream research, the cerebellum was the brain center, lower brain center at the back of the head that coordinates motor activity. So when you're, you know, have coordination of walking and moving your arms and performing any kind of manual dexterity, that's the cerebellum. But for 40 years, researchers have been establishing, and this is Larry Vandervert's paper on Vygotsky meets neuroscience. The cerebellum also coordinates different thought processes. And, and I have to let that sink in because it's like, no. Oh, yeah, it would, wouldn't it? It's not consciously directing them, but in the same way that it coordinates my hand and eye movement, my walking and chewing gum at the same time, why wouldn't it be coordinating neural networks involving centers for emotions and imagination and mathematics? It's a coordinating center. So this is all very promising. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, not easy for me to completely follow all of it when it gets to the technical brain detail stuff. So I'm going to ask a dumb guy question, which is my specialty. And 
That is, in the situation where two kids are playing, and then maybe the mom helps one of the kids understand how she might use, uh, you know, a napkin as a blanket or something like that, or, you know, uh, object substitution. Is, does any, did these things develop simultaneously, the following things? The, the mom helping the kid, the kid's brain developing, actual brain, like developing in a certain way, the kid developing the ability to do object substitution. Sorry if I have the name wrong. Um, are those three things occurring in conjunction? Is there an order? Like, let me say it differently. If somebody's developing some sort of higher mental function in the process, does the brain have to be in place first for that? Does the development of new mental functions influence, allow the brain to change? Is there any order to this? Or, or the social element of the mom sort of maybe modeling or interacting with the kid, you know, her developed behavior with the kids still developing behavior. Are these things all sort of a, a mix or is there any order? Well, basic developmental neuroscience. There are stages when neural connections are developing in infancy and in childhood, in the preschool years, right? And then on middle childhood, adolescence. So for the preschooler, the, in, the social interaction is actually stimulating the growth of neural connections that had not been there before. And, and, and you know, I, I'm confident in my description, which is kind of a layman's description of all of this, and some neuroscientist can jump in and give us a lot of technical stuff. But I'm just going to say that William Fowler did some real interesting studies with infants, and talking from infancy is what it's called. And this is just a basic example because, you see, he found that if you start repeating the sounds that an infant is making before it's a recognizable word that they're uttering, they're just playing with sounds. But if you start imitating their sounds, they will repeat the sound. And when my son was about five weeks old, he was making an O sound. So I started singing, shuffle off to buffalo. And when I would do the O, but see, this is just classic. I learned it from reading William Fowler's, Fowler's book. My son, baby, said O is one of many different sounds he says, but I could turn it into a little song and a little routine. And when I'd say shuffle off to buffalo, then he would repeat, oh. And what's happening in the brain is there's an area in the left hemisphere that is the area for speech production. And when he is a little five-week-old, just happens to say, oh, there, I know there's activity in the Broca's area. 
when I repeat all back, now I'm activating Wernicke's area for sound recognition. And somewhere the connection's being formed back the loop, back to producing the O sound. We once did a really pretty duet in class where I took a chance with him in his little bouncy chair of singing Shuffle Off to Buffalo with him and see, I could say, take it away, baby. And you go, oh, <laughs> okay. So it, it, the brain is, has plasticity at that time, right? Very, very interesting. And, go, and just to go back to the early thing, see, I think then. And, and excuse me for that interruption. I had a little bit of a sneezing fit. But um, for whatever reason, my mind is moving toward um, some of what Vygotsky says about like word meaning and its important and its importance and how or is it words develop or word meaning develops or I'm not sure if there's a natural transition to that topic but and it, it built right from the things we had just mentioned can I offer can I offer like a a, a quick take and then you can give me you can expand yeah. and correct it that would be ideal uh, I'll go very practical. So let's take the word chair. This is something I use in my class. Um, and everybody understands that word. Uh, but if you ask somebody to sit on it, can't actually sit on the word, but they could sit on a chair. Um, mm -hmm. So so there's a difference between like the actual thing and like the word used to signify the thing. And the word chair is not referring to one chair, but it's referring to sort of general concept chairs and and uh if somebody like gets into the habit of breaking them or building them or putting them to, putting them together or designing them or studying them painting them etc shopping for chairs maybe becoming chair of a department uh so actually being a chair uh i would think that their their understanding of that word develops deepens mm -hmm. it's richer and how about for a more interesting word, like, I don't know, like love or analysis or something like that. You could understand the word rather easily from in like its dictionary sense, but the richer, I always use the word richer for some reason, or heavier or weightier. Um, is that what it means by the word meaning develops? Is it like it develops for you personally as you get more intimate with all the connotations of the word? Or does it like if word being developed, like where does it develop? Is it out in the world? Is it internally? I have some questions about all that. And it is a socialization process because every culture has its vocabulary that it is going to introduce the child to it at an early age. And we were just talking about how the infant would connect its vocalization, its speech, with the sound that it hears. And, and, and keeping in mind, when I'm speaking, I'm hearing it's coming into. But as you speak to me, that is just going into Wernicke's area. But what does it all mean? So as I'm singing the duet, Shuffle Off the Buffalo, the words don't mean anything. 
but we are learning role play. This is there's interesting things going on, right? And um, yeah, we're we're we're, part, we're playing together with the sound, right? So we're playing together with the sound, but we don't have meaning. Now I'm going to just say this is a this is a good example, Helen Keller. So early sounds that become the mama, baba, dada, wawa sounds. So when the parents start hearing the M sound, uh, first name that I had was M. You know, where's M? Okay, it wasn't mama. It was M. Okay, so but that when you start hearing that M sound which some linguists claim comes back to smacking the lips after breastfeeding, <laughs> a breastfeeding sound, I don't know. They hear the M sound, the adult caregivers, or maybe a, a peer, older, a little bit older peer, see, will then start directing that toward, that's directed toward the presence of this lady who comes in and she does all kinds of things. She changes diapers, she feeds you, she cuddles you, she sings to you. In the stages of language development, when the baby first uses the term, and in any of these M variations of mama, when, when it wants to call out to mom, when it recognizes mama, when it wants mama pick me up, it's called a holophrase, H-O-L-O, holophrase because it isn't the lady's identity yet. It, it is a, refers to a whole phrase. Uh, so mama, pick me up is, is actually a phrase, but I, the baby just says mama. But another time it might say mama, um, something's wrong, right? I'm crying out. But gradually, as it becomes the word mother, mama, mom, mother, it, this is the development of concepts. And Vygotsky writes a lot about learning to think in concepts. And th that's where you were going, Anthony, when you're talking about chair, because as chair becomes a concept, um, I did mention Helen Keller, and I want to say this because this is real interesting about her. The first hand sign that she makes for Annie Sullivan is for water. The first time that she realizes, and Vygotsky did a lot of work, work with deaf, hearing impaired people. Huh? And he taught teachers who taught the deaf, even, even before he came to um, Moscow, Leningrad to do psychology research. But so that Annie Sullivan keeps making these hand signs. That's just darn annoying, right? But she keeps making these hand signs. And finally, the big breakthrough, when Helen is at the water pump and she realizes that the hand sign for water is referring to the sensation of this water pouring over her other hand. And that's her discovery of word meaning, right? And, and see, water can expand as a bigger concept to refer to water and all kinds of different concepts, but that's, that's her big breakthrough. Now, in 1928, Vygotsky wrote a paper called 
the genetic roots of thought and language. Now, in, in the old psychology of the early 20th century, the European psychologists used the word genetic to refer to developmental. They were not talking about DNA and genes and chromosomes. So he is talking about the developmental roots of thought and language. And he has this beautiful example where he says, picture two circles that are separate. One of them is your sensory motor experience. And that's Helen's experience of the water running over her hand. The other is meaningless vocalizations. In her case, it's just these hand signs that it's, they're not even signs. It's just his hand movement, right? Gestures. And that at the moment when the two circles intersect in a Venn diagram, that is the creation of word meaning. It's that intersection. That's verbal thought. And it's so beautiful in the Helen Keller example. I mean, it doesn't have to be speech. It could be the hand sign. But what had been separate came together. And now it's a hand sign. It's the beginning of language. What I understand when Helen Keller was stricken with that illness that caused her to be deaf and blind, she was around one year of age and had begun to say, wah-wah for water. So she actually would have rediscovered what she once knew. So there, you had raised a question of like with psychological systems, are you creating them on the moment each time? But see, these do become habits, and neurological habits of thinking. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. When so am I hearing that when Vygotsky says word meaning develops, he's probably talking more about the capacity to develop uh, verbal thinking, and he's talking less about the fact that an individual word, like chair, develops in depth, or one or a person develops their word meaning the more they well, get to know a word or a concept? Is he talking more about the former than the latter? Well, see, then uh, once we've connected the two circles, and he, he doesn't get into this, but we could be Neo-Vagatskians. So, so once we start having verbal thought, we're going to start understanding other people's speech, right? We're starting to understand language when we hear it. And every culture has their own vocabulary and things sometimes are lost in translation. So I'm just going to say, right? So when you're translating and you're finding the equivalent word, right? So within every cultural system, you have a, a linguistic system. So this child's being introduced to it. In some societies, and this is this is a sensitive area here. Let's see, in some societies, there are very rigid rules for the use of vocabulary terms that lead us to conceptual hierarchies. So a chair will have a dictionary definition or two. 
And during the process of schooling, we are going to correct that child. So early on, um, you know, um, a doggy could be, as a term, is going to overlap. So a chihuahua may appear to have more in common with a cat, okay, size-wise, and that you can carry him around than it does with a German shepherd. But we'll get that straightened out through formal schooling that because cats have retractable claws and chihuahuas don't, we will introduce you to Linnaeus's taxonomy. Okay? Even though you, you may never know it, it's Linnaeus who's responsible for setting up these guidelines for how animals should be classified into species. But see, then it becomes that whole process of formal schooling that you're trained in. Um, we just had a really interesting session yesterday on, our, on cultural praxis. And this video will be posted by the end of the week. And we were looking at Vivian Paley's uh, book, her observations of preschool children and using language. And there's, there's one little boy in her classroom where he's saying, I'm an Ellie lion. And see, the teacher, Vivian Paley, who, who uh, is, is, is not overbearing, right? But it's like, well, what do you mean you're an Ellie lion? Or do you have a trunk? Do you roar? Now, we're stepping into Linnaeus's taxonomy here. Elephants have trunks, they don't roar. Um, I don't know what they do, but <laughs> they make a different sound. Lions roar. You cannot be an Ellie lion except in the imagination where you can combine these two things irrationally. And he could be an Ellie lion. He's, only, he's not even three years old, right? So you know, so formal schooling will get those notions out of your head unless maybe you have a caregiver who's willing to play along and say, well, what, what, well, what would an Ellie lion do? And how would it be different from an elephant? And how would it be different from a lion? We've got a creative moment here. Let's not lose it. Yeah. But if you're very didactic, now we've got to separate these and leave that silliness behind. So uh, we're, and, and, and see, um, comedy will take us back to combining things that are never supposed to be combined together. And that's what's going to make us laugh. Because just when we think someone's using language in a proper way, there, there comes the punchline to the joke. Yeah, and there's a, there's a, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of AI comedy that's coming into existence right now because uh, to some extent it's formulaic and that's mm -hmm. it has a different system for joke writing but you know one system has I think like five rules as long mm -hmm. as two, the five are enacted you can get a joke you know one of them is combining things that don't normally go together and now for Vygotsky the final outcome as I understand him is the development of the creative innovative adult 
So the adolescent's just beginning to develop these higher psychological systems of using imagination and thinking and concepts um, deliberately, um, consciously, to, to the fact that they can do it consciously at all, some conscious manipulation of images, analytic thinking, but they're just beginning it. So the proficiency is for the adult. To me, that was sure enough to get him banned by Stalin. Every culture does not want innovative adult thinkers who can think for themselves. Okay. Um, that doesn't mean that you can't be a team player and involve in collaborative creative work. Right? There, there's, that, that's important. But see, the fact that you could think thoughts in your head that you're not expressing, and I'm just going to say for a regime like the Stalinist regime, right, the very notion that I could be thinking one thing and saying another, and you don't know what I'm really thinking. We want to know what you're thinking because we control your speech, control your thoughts, right? I mean, there's a, there's a whole dark side to that. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Now, what I like as a liberating idea is that the basic teaching methods can be done by anybody. They don't have to be part of formal schooling. And see, I feel very strongly that learning to use one object as if it's another. When you're a preschooler, it's wonderful. Maybe it's good to learn it at any age. But, and see, Vygotsky says that, that, that that's the central activity for pretend play. He doesn't say it's learning to do storytelling. Pretend play helps you develop skills of understanding and creating narratives. Yeah, right? It helps you vision yourself in a different role, an adult role, understanding what it looks like from somebody else's point of view. Those are all nice things. Uh, makes you want to draw, makes you want to sing and dance and all that. But God's be saying that there's special importance when you are able to take one object and use it as another. And, and it could be in the kitchen, right? If I can't open a particular can, but I take a screwdriver, and I'm sticking it under the lid and flipping it up. Is basic resourcefulness, or is there a better a better descriptor than it, that? It, 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 it is a necessity as the mother of invention, but it's it's you know being able to see one object from another framework. So Gregory Bateson's work, where he introduced the idea of pretend play as learning to frame, to change frames. See, if we're, if, we're, if we're in a preschool classroom and now it's time to play, we've been doing our ABCs and now we're going to shift frames. So let's pretend, right, and see as I'm changing frames. But even taking the flathead screwdriver and using it to flip up a lid, Right? I'm looking at the screwdriver and seeing it in a different frame. I'm not unscrewing a screw. If I'm rigid, 
And that, that's all I know it does. And that's all I can. If I've been told that's all I dare use it for. I mean, there'd be no reason. But I'm just saying, if I'm just said, this is the, this is what this tool is used for. But if, if, if I'm flexible and I can say, well, I could see it could be something else. It, right? It, it, it's a mechanical skill of being able as an inventor to use one thing as another. It's, um, you know, and, and for Vygotsky, it was also important in the development of abstract thinking that leads to concept development. And he's gone in the direction, direction of these hierarchy conceptual systems where we have, you know, chair as a piece of furniture and furniture are things that we either sit on or eat off of or so you know what i mean we're going higher higher hierarchies of things it's a, a chair is not organic that's a little weird to think of a chair as a as a living thing a plant a tree or something as a chair. I'm just saying that, see, there's certain categories we don't cross. Chairs are not living. Chairs are inanimate. And that's a pretty much a standard category. So th there may be, you know, so as we're learning the conceptual systems, it's getting very formalized, very role bound, but that, that enables scientists to communicate to each other with precision. And that's very important. Um, people who are writing up constitutions and negotiating peace deals, precision in language. I'm just saying that there's a whole reason for that would be moving in that language. And if we see, uh, if we see, I'm sorry, I keep forgetting the, the, the term, like object substitution, if we see that as sort of like a seeds of development for imagination or creativity and then we see maybe a creative adult who's really good at reframing arguments possibly uh, reframing perspectives um, reframing even the way they might read a text as, as mm -hmm. a counter a counter narrative mm -hmm. in some way is is this all the same line of development that almost has its infancy in like objects yeah or substitution type and see in our cultural praxis seminars and just you know google cultural praxis and and you and they will pop up a month ago we started building a bridge from psychology studies to a totally different discipline totally different field. Not that we're the first to ever do this, but Shannon Brinkett, who's a professor of international relations, had just published a paper with his co-authors on imagination and international relations yeah, okay. theory. And he cites the paper Sorry, that man. I had published. First thought I had was Little Rocket. Yeah. Sorry about that. Okay. Yeah. So 
he cited a paper Larry and I had published back in 2018 where we're talking about how the seeds for the development of imagination are in children's play. But this is a paper written for a totally different discipline, a totally different field, international relations, PhD programs, professors. But Shannon and his co-authors were arguing that international relations theories have not looked at the positive role that imagination plays and is needed in international relations, resolving conflicts, preventing conflicts and those kinds of things. And he, he and his co-authors say that the dominant approach to um, imagination has been Hobbes in his field. And it's like, gee, what I know about Hobbes <laughs> is the cover of a book, Leviathan, okay? But that Hobbes portrays imagination as fueling people's suspicion and paranoia and grudges, but that there could be a positive development for imagination. So this is what we're exploring just now, even yesterday. In December, we're going to, I'm going to do a presentation on framing, which gets right back to what you're talking about. Because if children learn to be flexible in framing activities and then reframing them, that will develop into negotiation skills at the UN. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not wrong. I'm not wrong when I thought of Little Rocket Man. I'm not actually. That actually was not an insane thought, but, but yeah, yeah. That's, yes. that's all about. That's all about just crazy breaking the frame, or or these are the variables. Here we have these these set of variables at play, and we can't move the variables around in a way that works out. International relations, whatever the situation, you know, these are the variables. We're moving on the pieces around and it's not working. Or just so-called shake the hell out of the box yeah. and maybe see and if some new variable comes in. No, see, some cultures theory. Yeah, go ahead. are deeply committed to maintaining a traditional orthodox frame. And it is not to be tampered with. Yeah, ours is ours is as well, I think. Uh, at least in terms of international relations, which I, I'm completely out of my depth talking on this topic. But but I mean, you can see when there's a you can see when there's sort of a, a frame breaking moment or a, a creative thinking moment happening. Mm -hmm. And I also want to say that in some 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 cultures. It's danger, really... danger, it's dangerous to uh, dangerous to be different. Dangerous to do something. Well, here I am at almost, almost age 70. Looking crazy or something. Well, see, almost age 70 and, and, and papers I translated back in the 1980s are being translated into French and Polish and Korean and all over. And people are realizing they're three papers and they're related. But and I didn't have a terribly hard time of it. 
and, and I have a nice disposition anyway, so, you know, I can roll with the punches. But I spent 30 years as a community college professor. They, I wasn't embraced upon discovering these three lost papers and pulling this stuff together, right? And, and I will say for my community college students that they were every bit as important as students I had, would have been teaching at an Ivy League school. And one of the reasons I'm, I'm so casual in talking about these very lofty philosophical notions is I taught this stuff over and over again for 30 years. I had community college students who knew about Vygotsky when he wasn't being taught in the four-year schools. So there. But so the... Um, oh, so yes, there, be, having frame flexibility depending on where you are, what and, and regimes change. So, yeah. Um, but I wanted to say that in some societies, they, they will allow some frank flexibility in some areas, but there are the areas that are taboo. And, and Nowadays, 2022, 2022, 2022, how do you describe your role in the uh, wider, larger Gotsky sphere, for lack of a better term, how would you say, like, what you bring, what is your role, and you fit in or not? Um, feel like you have a defined role? Do you see yourself in a certain way? I have become important. Okay. Now, my husband and I kept publishing. We have a lot of publications over 40 years. But see, one of my role models was Vygotsky. I also think of Freud, and he put up a lot. And I kind of like Marie Curie. So I had never, even as a high school student, I saw the film freshman year, they showed us a film called Why Man Creates which is still okay. one of my very favorite films. Are you the person who, I, did I find that from you? Because mm -hmm. I might have been. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. But anyway, go ahead. And this is freshman year in an all-girl high school, Catholic high school. And, and I was just to totally inspired by that. But see, that set up my frame that the really important creative works don't come easy. And the really important creative people are rarely recognized in their lifetimes. So I did give away my age. I'm you know, going to get close to 70. And I'm actually getting some recognition in my lifetime. Well, got, <laughs> I got that going for me. And my son said to me, he's in graduate school now in international relations theory. So that's what happened. I don't know something about it. But he said to me, how do you feel about getting recognition this late <laughs> in the game? Good interview question. It's a good question in general. Yeah. And I said that I'm just glad that I never had to sacrifice the integrity of my work. And see, I was in circumstances because... See, 30 years as community college professor gave me a steady income with tenure. So I actually did not have to cater to the fashions of academia. 
And then I retired at age 53 under an early retirement plan. So I was blessed to be able to just keep doing what Larry and I, we could just keep doing, developing those ideas the way we thought they should be. I guess uh, in terms of how you were trained as far as dealing with the text itself primarily, right? And yes, yes. Sure. Now, and the, you know, little anecdotal yeah. story when I had translated. One the first... okay. Just one okay. second, I'm so sorry. Oh. Apologies again for the, uh, for the interruption that was unanticipated. But um, yeah, now now you know I have I have ones or maybe twos of viewers viewership. My viewership ranges in the in the ones, so your recognition is going to go through the roof now. <laughs> well, those viewers may want to take a look at what we're doing on cultural praxis, and you should be joining us as part of our group because we are addressing a lot of these questions and and you know it's it's a big step forward in in my career that I am that people want <laughs> to address these questions okay because for a long time you know it, it, and I always felt as long as we had publications those would be discovered long after I was dead and gone. But publications counted. But now we've got an active group going that's engaged in talking about these things. Yeah, it's just really interesting to me as somebody who's not really in that world, you know, in that publishing world. Yeah. Um, it's it's just interesting to hear you just say, you know, I anticipated I anticipated making a dent or an influence, but not really so much in my lifetime. But, you know, I, I anticipated my work lasting. It's just, that's really cool. And, and see, if you look at Vygotsky, yeah, see, yeah. I, I, right? I mean, see, at the time he dies, he dies of tuberculosis at age 37, a month before his trial for politically incorrect thinking. Hmm. His works are already being banned in his lifetime. Right? He, they say, he was very depressed, <laughs> you know, and it's like that's not just the health problem. But yet, on his deathbed, he dictates the last chapter of his book, Thought and Language. So he, the last work that he works and pulls together is a collection of papers, which is thought and language. It's a paper on the genetic development of thought and language from 1928. He puts that in that collection. He put, there, puts a chapter. There, there are so many dramatic elements yeah. to his story. Um, but he, he, so he, 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 even on his deathbed, he's finishing the last chapter. Yeah, I mean, I, I really think think in the hands of the right really talented people i th i think there's a movie to be made about this guy's life i think mm -hmm. he was trying to from what i understand he was trying to take trying to pick up where wilhelm Bond left off as far as uh you know carrying the football a little further down the field solving some problems that were heretofore unsolvable very dramatic you know you could almost imagine a uh, film star mm -hmm. as he's mm -hmm. on I'm trying to solve some of these issues all the way through to the end. Never mind the political persecution 
Never mind yeah. the fact that he lucked out, you know, getting into college as opposed to, you know, a much grimmer fate. Mm -hmm. uh, the fact that, you know, this was his sort of dying contribution. And then, and then, uh, you know, that movie should include a little, a little five minutes of the movie should include people working in his, you know, in his wake a hundred years later. Mm -hmm. and, I don't know. I just, I think he is very interesting. Right. With all sorts mm -hmm. of radical events that I'm sure led to his own development, development of his ideas. Mm -hmm. uh, there are some interesting documentaries, by the way, uh, which I assume most people know about, uh, about him and his life. But I'm, I'm thinking like movies. Yeah. It to be a really great movie. Yes, yes. Even for, even for regular people, you know, even for like the public yeah. at large. Mm -hmm. And and, and I, I was just going to say that for for young people who are starting to think about careers, for students who are you know uh, it doesn't matter grade school, high school, college, and young professionals say Vygotsky is a good role model, and you know that you know that. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's just a story of resilience. Integrity, resilience, yeah. And I wanted to tell just a, a couple anecdotes that so that college students, maybe at this point, graduate students, as you're starting to read the text and you have all of these authorities telling you what it means and you're reading the text and you don't think they're right and who are you right they're the authorities they're the professors at the big name universities but see in my experience i was a i'm a graduate from community college okay and i took five russian courses when I was at the community college. Ten years later, I had to pass my Russian reading exam for my PhD program. So I had saved my books and I reviewed all the declensions and conjugations and grammatical rules and all that kind of stuff. And I walked in to take the essay exam and in English it said, graduate reading exam in Russian for University of Chicago. And I knew this was a bad sign because it was a graduate reading exam. And say, I hadn't, I'm not a graduate student in Russian. So do they mean this is for non-Russian majors, people with undergraduate Russian and getting a PhD in some other field? Or is this for people who are in graduate school? I'm gonna have trouble with this essay on Mussorgsky's operas, okay? So, and I tell my students this story, so I'll make it public record. 70 was passing, 75's passing with honors. Of course, my department requires passing with honors. I flunked with a 67. And one of my professors was Benjamin Bloom, and he was the author of Mastery Learning. So you keep studying, you can only get better. And I'm only a couple points. 
So I went and took the exam a second time and I flunked with a 69. Damn. <laughs> you mean there wasn't one little point that that person grading the exam could have given me? So I went to see the woman grading the exam and I said, you know, I've gone through all my textbooks and, and this is higher level. And she said, someone with a bachelor's degree in Russian should be able to pass this. Well, I have to pass with honors, like if I had a master's degree in Russian. Oh, what the heck? I said, well, what should I be working on? And she said, practice translating things in your field. And it's like, well, there's only two Russian psychologists I've ever heard of. One is Pavlov, and I'll be damned if I'm going to spend hours and hours translating passages about salivating dogs. And then there's this Vygotsky guy. And in graduate course, we had been assigned thought and language. And there were a couple of really interesting passages. So at least it gives me something to work with. So I started, so I got the, the Russian text of thought and language from the library at Champaign-Urbana. And I discovered that it was twice as thick as the 1962 English translation published by MIT Press, and this is 1984. So I'm making a very rude discovery. I'm having a very rude awakening about my discipline, my field. Oh. And I'm discovering that the MIT Press publication, which was the only one out in English, the translators omitted half of the passages in a random fashion. And then it's like, oh, no wonder when I was trying to read it, I'd read the paragraph about these two intersecting circles creating word meaning. And it was, that's just brilliant. And then like the next paragraph is like, I don't know where, he, where did he jump to? Well, two or, two or three paragraphs may be missing. So I thought, well, that's a real kick in the head because I can't pull that off when I'm translating these essays for my Russian language exam. And here I am trying to pass, to pass with honors, and I'm, I am able to correct the MIT publication. But that's the University of Chicago for you, okay? So I thought, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to see if Vygotsky wrote anything that I'm interested in. This is 1984. Larry and I had already presented in Wales on the development of imagination as a consciously directed thought process. So maybe Vygotsky's got something on creativity. Well, there's that 1960 paper. Well, I might as well translate something that's never been translated before that I'm interested in instead of correcting this MIT publication. Okay, so I'm going to go with what's interesting to me. Third time I took the essay, I passed with a 72. I'm on the way to a 75 in honors. I'm working on Vygotsky's paper from 1932. Uh, his uh, 1960 is, came out in Russian. So by the time I've finished that paper, I have passed with honors. And I send the paper off to one of the countries, U.S. top Vygotsky experts of the hour. 
I get a phone call in two days. And he says, this is just great. We need Vygotsky translators for the English translations of the Vygotsky collected works that are just being issued in Russian. So you can have a job at, with Plenum Publishing. I could have been. I turned it down. One of those red books, yeah? I'm sorry? Are you talking about one of those red books? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I could have been a Marie Hall. Okay. So I was offered that job. And I said, and then I can, this fellow who I won't mention his name, but he said to me, and on top of being one of the translators, we, he said we have four volumes that have no translators assigned to them. So, so you, you know, they need you. He said, and you can go to Russia, all expenses paid for up to nine months to study with the Russian experts on Vygotsky to learn how to interpret him. And I turned that down. And I said, well, what I really want to do is I want to see if Vygotsky wrote anything else on creativity. And this expert on Vygotsky said he didn't. But he did, didn't he? He wrote two more papers. But I am going up against somebody who's arguably one of the top two Vygotsky experts in the U.S. And and, and, and and I will say, and it's not Michael Cole that I'm talking about, in case anybody's trying to figure out who I'm talking about. It wasn't Michael. But, you know, I had to play my hunch. And I, I my thinking was that Vygotsky is dying of tuberculosis those 10 years while he does writes all of these papers, right? That that if, and let me put this kind of bluntly, if you stay up all night coughing up a lung to write a paper on a topic in between stays at the tuberculosis sanitarium, it must be important to you. And I think he may have written something else. So I kept searching and I eventually found the other two papers. So I played my hunch. So that goes to something you mentioned about intuition. And you, you had sent me the YouTube video of the lesson that you do with your students. And, and I, I will mention it now because it's sort of like you have to like mentor yourself, right? You reach a certain point where it, maybe it's super ego function and psych and uh, psychoanalytic terminology but you have like a higher self so when the everyday self is kind of panicking and thinking you know i must be not <laughs> right I, i'm just gonna turn this stuff down because that is not how real knowledge is found now why, why is it so important for me i'm in my late 20s early 30s right that I actually want to know um, something that's genuine rather than, and I'm willing to sacrifice, right? A momentary fame of rushing off, going to Russia. But see, I already knew that the Russians were pursuing activity theory and Vygotsky wasn't there. Yeah. All very interesting. 
And uh, one small observation I have is that the person who told you to improve your test score by doing mm -hmm. translations yeah. was, was very wise in ways that were that they were conscious of, and maybe even in ways that they weren't conscious of. But I would argue that they knew what they were talking about because as, as soon as you got your hands on translating Vygotsky, and then having and then having a secondary moment where you did something that was like really kind of cool or possibly even groundbreaking, then your test score handled itself, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. something shifted inside you where your identity was no longer the struggling test taker. Your identity yeah. was like somebody who's making advance, so to speak. You know, and the and the points were just the you know, the raising of the score just is gonna follow naturally, not without work. You know what I'm saying? Like yes. There was a sort of shift in your uh, whole persona that took place, and and I think I think that shift was very profound for you. That you realize that's where the good stuff is, maybe. Yes. In your own and, story. Yeah. And and in a way, though, someone once referred to University of Chicago as being the Marine Corps of academia, and so you, and and that. And, and it's kind of like Navy SEAL training, right? Where they're going to like really raise the bar so high, right? And 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 I gave you, you know, my test scores, just to show. I mean, it's just a couple yeah. points. Yeah. And a couple this is more where, points. This is, I think, when I think in a lot of different departments they were distinguishing themselves in that way. I know I'm pretty sure, like their 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 impact on economics, for example. Was, mm -hmm was rather different than this, the standard of the time. They were doing a lot of groundbreaking stuff there. I think at a similar time. But but I'm gonna ask a question and now I'm gonna tweak my original question. Uh, my original, if you don't mind, I'm gonna read just for a sec. My original question was written like this. How, how would you describe, explain, introduce or characterize Vygotsky's work in a general but still useful way uh, to non-experts, is my original, but I'm, I'm going to tweak it slightly. How would you describe, explain, introduce, or characterize Vygotsky's work or theory of creativity in a general way, useful way to non-experts? What do you have to say about that? There would be two things. Talking to babies. Okay. It's very important to start talking to babies and encouraging them to to reply, right? So getting them started in a in a conversation, uh, continuing that, you know. Um, David Wood did a real interesting study. He and Bruner came up with scaffolding, but Bruner found that the most effective teachers are the ones who adjust the level of their involvement depending on what the learner can do on their own. So when you when you would you know talk to babies, you don't want to be overpowering and inhibit them. I'm talking, right? You you want to talk to them and then allow them to to start to respond and find out what kind of coaching, what kind of um, guidance they might need. And uh, I was working with a child once with a jigsaw puzzle and I was giving her, I was kind of shifting the pieces over toward her a little by little. And she just told me, stop that. I can find the pieces by myself, 
right? So I'm just saying that you do you, you don't want to give them more help than they need. You just give them enough to get them to move on. So talking to children. The second thing would be the object substitutions. And uh, there is no preschool program in the entire world that is a regular preschool program that has the showing children how to use object substitutions in pretend play as a major part of the play curriculum. There's storytelling, right? But there's, but however, showing autistic children how to use one object as if it was another in play has become a standard part of educational activities with the autistic. And there are studies on that now. So this is a really strange thing. It has not become part of the regular standard preschool curriculum, but it is standard operating procedure with autistic kids to help the autistic children move to language skills. Having them use one object as if another in play, just like Vygotsky said. I can't, I mean, I can't help think about this at, 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 at the adult level, that late adolescent level. I think of the show, Whose Line Is It Anyway? I'm not sure if you're familiar with that show. I think of comedians like Robin Williams. And then I think of like really creative thinkers in the, maybe even in the public sphere who are able to just reframe things and cast a new vision or a new light on ideas that are kind of talked out to death. And, and they all have that, they all have that ability to replace one thing with another. And Whose Line Is It Anyway? There's, there's a, Somebody comes out with like a bag of bag of stuff and they hand the two comedians a thing. It might be like a feather boa or something. And they have to just like instinctually just improv comedy, turn it into this, that, this. And, and you and see I have never the seen most that. highly developed like creative people. That's like, that's like where they really shine when it comes to saying, here's one thing, turn it into four or five other things. And you just see them, it's like, it's kind of like magical because if you're not good at that, you're wondering how it's done. But I almost see that as like the, the pinnacle of development in terms of this change that you're talking about, maybe introducing at a-, a And, and um, with babies, there are caregivers who introduce object substitutions with little, tiny infants and it's hand games. I'm gonna find my hand here, right? So there are different kinds of hand games and I'm getting good image, I'll set back, right? But um, see, if, if you're gonna pretend your hand is a duck, see, you, you could animate a stuffed animal and pretend it's talking, but I'm kind of going back to the way peasants might've done it in Eastern Europe. Now Polish background, so does my husband, right? So maybe it's a stocking puppet, but long before today, see, it's just a hand. Hi, 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 how are you? Huh? I'm gonna grab the, grab your hair, right? So we start. In Polish, we learned Bobolesia, and I'm probably not pronouncing it right, but this is what I remember from my childhood, and I will stand up and I will do Bobolesia. Bobolesia is the hand game where it's like a spider. And on a little tiny baby, it's going button by button, 
five button. And then in old fashioned way, <laughs> it jumps to your neck. Is it is this little bubblish spider coming up and up and up and yeah. hey, you mean he actually jumped up and bit the baby? But see if you do it with the right intonation, bubblish, bubblish, bubblish. <laughs> they laugh and you laugh. Okay. Now, an African American lady in one of my classes at the community college said she had learned teddy bear, teddy bear running around. And I, I don't even remember. It was very pretty, the little song. Teddy bear, teddy bear is running around, and teddy bear runs up your arm and gives you a kiss. So you can you can do this with little tiny babies, and they don't understand yet teddy bear, spider, but they are starting to participate in the make-believe play. And it could start that early. I teach eighth grade for 13 year olds, 14 year olds, 12, 13, 14. That's what I teach. And they are surrounded by scientific concepts and they are surrounded by, uh, you know, the proper definition is this, but not that. Um, uh, do you have any like thoughts on that age group as far as? any bear type stuff that might be appropriate for keeping the imagination flourishing, developing, alive, while, you know, like while, while so many formal type concepts are developing that might be a little stultifying? That's a good question. <laughs> you might have stumped me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of it takes place through writing. Oh, I teach like a language arts classroom. So I mean, writing for that, but I, I don't know, just a random question. Yeah. Oh, like if we have, if we have the teddy bear line culminating in say Robin Williams, great comedian who could improv it yeah. at the adolescent phase, what might, what might effective uh, practices, exercises, games be? Yeah. Um... I think that one way to do it would be with mechanical hands-on building things and realizing that there was a Russian play researcher named Fred Kino, okay, and her work is cited by Al Conan, the great famous Russian play researcher, Daniel O'Connor, but he cites Fred Kino's dissertation. And he said that in play, the important thing is that you can give children their primary props like a doll, but don't give them replica toys for every little thing, like their bed, like the table, like the plate. Have objects that have no particular um, how can we say the designation reference? They don't have a particular reference. They can generically be used for many, many different things. Let them improvise. And I see, I would think that like, if somebody was learning like scientific concepts, if they're, if they're involved in you know, all these engineering activities and building robots and stuff like that, 
where you have to do hands-on problem solving. Could could be the simplest mechanical contraption. There was a famous experiment, and I don't remember the name, but it's a classic where the person had to reach an object, and the only way they could do it, the so solution, or was to there was a rope hanging. It's it's kind of like Polish chimps, but it's with the person. It, I should remember. But they, the, one of the solutions was to tie a pair of pliers onto this rope and then swing it to reach the other side. So, and I can't even remember why that solved the problem. <laughs> okay, but to realize that pliers are not just to be used to open your nail polish jar. Now I say that, right? Because it's sort of like, no, dear, <laughs> pliers. <laughs> That's not what pliers are used for. <laughs> That's what I use them for. Yeah, so you could, you could use the weight of the plier to be a pendulum to achieve some other purpose. So what I think, Working with hands-on things, even if it's not in a pretend play fantasy context, but where you are given a lot of different objects and, um, you know, it, it, you can improve. And somebody probably has a curriculum that does this. Yeah. That, you know what I mean? Where you, my professor, one of my favorite professors was Jack Getzels. And <clears throat> he had done a study of painters at the Art Institute. And what he and Csikszentmihalyi right, did was they had all kinds of odds and ends on a table, right? Just all sorts of knickknacks and things. And they asked the artists to, you know, take whatever they wanted from these objects and create a painting. And they found that the artists who met, spent the most time exploring these different objects were the ones who came up with the most creative paintings. So the more time spent in problem solving, in looking at the objects, I'm just going to say, in reframing, right? So maybe there's something we can think of between the two of us, Anthony, if we, you know, give some thought to this. See, how, how would you teach? older children, you know, uh, grade school, primary school, or adults, I, 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 my hunch is the best thing is hands-on objects and reframing yeah. them. Really interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was asked, as I was asking you the question, I was like, I was like, oh man, I hope I'm not putting her on the spot. But you came up with four or five, you know, really cool ideas, just kind of. Okay. <laughs> Glad I don't ideas. disappoint. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I'm gonna have to go in a couple minutes. Yeah. But um, uh, sooner than later. Case, the case, the case for continuing to develop creativity is an important case to make. Creativity develops, and then you have it or you don't. Creativity should be more forefronted in a curriculum. Creativity is for some people, but not others. Creativity is important to adulthood, important to society. Do you have like any piece to make that's not hyperbolic? Like any pro-creativity case? Or... I like 
Vygotsky's example of creativity being like electricity and that some people have this tremendous amount of creativity like a lightning storm, uh, Beethoven and Einstein. And then some people, it's the amount of electricity in a light bulb. And then one of my students would say, oh, so some of us are dim bulbs. <laughs> some of us are brighter voltage, right? But Vygotsky, I didn't take Vygotsky to mean that. When I took it, and, and see, he goes on to say that, you know, when you have this huge, tremendous, spectacular amount of creativity, that can be very wearing on the system. <laughs> Just the way an electrical storm, right, there's a tremendous amount of energy. And I'm going to say, now, I know that Albert Rothenberg's research on creativity and madness found that they are not correlated. There's no positive correlation. Okay, but I am going to say, so it's if you have a lot of creativity, there's a lot of strain, emotional strain. It is a lot of strain on the system. It goes with the territory. A little amount of everyday creativity is also a precious thing. And see, I think of all the unnamed people, see, who've invented little games and little songs to comfort a sick infant or child. And it never was patented, right? They never got a copyright. And that actually could get passed on, right? A friend of mine had a plaque she used to keep in her office that said, you know, that your influence on a child is the most important thing that carries on from generation to generation not the book you write, not the machine you invent, right? But so, so there are all these, you know, everyday kind of creativity, whether it's with a recipe or it's, I'm just saying with a child. And I use the example of like a sick child because that could like be really important in keeping them, you know, uh, keeping their spirits up, you know, and comforting them, um, just as important as medicine. Yeah. And and as far as the whether it could be taught, I mean, I think that see anybody at any age could learn to be more creative. And being more creative, even in a smaller amount, could be just as important as uh, you know. I mean, because because I'm looking at its value on the interpersonal level. So even a little more creative could make a tremendous difference in somebody's life. Yeah. It doesn't have to be Nobel Prize winning creativity. Yeah. I'm really interested in, in creativity in realms where you might not think about it as your first thought, like international relations, for example. But but because I have maybe two minutes or three. I wanted to ask you just the final question, and also thank you very much. It's been really fun. Um, uh, is there anything you'd like to restate, or maybe sort of re-summarize in like a nice, maybe smaller, condensed or packaged form, either about Vygotsky, either about yourself, or a combination of the two? I guess. 
<laughs> so you have the mic to, to wrap us up. Um, so, so I, I, I feel satisfied with what I said, so I don't think I need to revise or edit anything I said, or that I could reward it better. Right? Yes, for me, I, I like to. I like to. I don't even like to ask for revisions. I just like to ask for <laughs> like repetitions. Because that yeah. helps me. Anytime I can hear something a second time, it helps me. Yeah. Um, I I really don't know yeah. what yeah. would be some things up. Um, maybe what I would say is that the interesting thing here is that Vygotsky's words written in his papers somehow spoke to me. Okay. So I never had a conversation with him, but somehow from reading his words, not what somebody was telling me he meant, right, that I could, I somehow felt I could understand it wasn't always easy because I'm reading it in Russian. <laughs> but, but I felt like I could understand what he was saying and get, you know, a lot of insight from that. And I'm sure that would make him feel good. <laughs> Do you uh, think that so I, I, many... I can read in English and I don't understand. But yeah, that's, that's awesome. Right. That, you know, so many years after you're dead and gone, somebody... And, and it's not just reading your words, but I also gave the example of things that you have said and done with a child that they might say and do with their child, their grandchild, their great-grandchild, and you don't even remember yeah. who first said it or where it first came from. But it, it can do a tremendous amount of good. So I'm, I'm ending it on a positive note that... These things, th there are things that are worth saying and writing and, you know, drawing and inventing, you know, that the, the, um, the need to be creative is valuable, even if at the time you have no idea whether it, it's going to make any difference or not. I like it. Okay. Thank you. I like it. Thank you. Did you have did, did you did you have a nice time? This was a lot of fun. And I and I, I appreciate your patience because do you see I can talk on and on and on. <laughs> so Yeah, we could probably go for another another two hours if we wanted yeah. to. But um that is not an option for me today, but maybe another time. And I, I am tired. I think I finally have reached my limit. <laughs> okay, well, my family would be happy to hear. Yeah. Well, I'm, I always like when people are smiling and laughing at the end of a long conversation, and I am as well. So, uh, thanks for putting the smile on my face. When when I when I listen to this a second time, I'm gonna. I always learn double or triple when I listen back, and I look forward to that. And I really do appreciate it. Uh, nice meeting you finally face to face. Okay, and, thank uh, you, Anthony. Thanks again. We'll keep in touch. Okay. Okay. All right, ciao. Bye.